everyone i'm denisha hi everyone i'm denisha devnarayan and you're watching the full quota podcast on one world sports radio hello 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 and welcome to another episode of the full quota podcast my name is mpomutlani and i'm joined by tim this is an interesting edition of the full quota podcast you know we normally talk cricket um south african cricket and south africa is going to start playing their warm up games for the world cup soon um but today we thought we'd bring you something a little bit different we 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 normally bring you interviews and since we had that interview with roland butcher earlier on at the start of of our of our of our podcast we thought maybe we get a another um interesting conversation going around um West Indian cricketers and the rebel tours that happened in South Africa um was okay I wasn't even born when the rebel tours happened but they framed so much of the South African cricketing experience and cricketing history and so Tim managed to get um a very interesting guest and Tim will introduce that guest but Tim how are you doing Okay, good. Yeah, all, all, all refreshed and uh, ready for the interview. Yes. So, um, Tim, just give us a um, before we even go there. Please remember to like and subscribe to our One World Sports Radio channel. We're following the protests throughout the World Cup, so please do um, uh, or subscribe, and and you'll be notified whenever we go live. The protests are hoping to uh, slay some demons. um at this world cup and hopefully get through but um tim can you introduce the guest today um let us know why you thought yeah. um we would have this, uh, uh well we bring him on today to have this conversation yeah so obviously as mpor said we are a south african themed podcast and this is a feature that i would like to introduce on a more regular basis but um we would need uh those out those out there listening to give me your input with you think it's a good idea Um so our guest is Ashley Cray who's written a book about the West Indian rebel tours that happened in the early 80s like and poor uh I wasn't born when they were going on but their stories of those tours had a huge impact on me and the fact that we had West Indian players playing in in, in our country for the next 20 years after these tours had a huge impact uh and like I was growing up with the, the Malcolm Marshalls and the Desmond Haynes of this world playing so I just thought it was a really good idea to get Ashley Gray on to talk about those tours to talk about the, the wider impact on both uh, cricket in the West Indies and in here in South Africa Yes and so the book is called The Unforgiven Missionaries and Merc- Missionaries or Mercenaries the tragic story of the rebel West Indian cricketers who toured apartheid South Africa um without further ado let's get Ashley Gray on and let's have this conversation I'm really excited hi Ashley um thank Hello, you very guys. much for joining us hi it's great to be here I'm, I'm looking forward to our chat yes um yes actually i think for me um this these tours have always been interesting largely from the the, the context of 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 where our country was and and the game in which our, actually south africa is right now um with, with 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 a lot of with a lot of talk about transformation and everything else but from a from a from a perspective of the younger crowd myself when born them but we know about the rebel tours there are some mm. who don't um and there were two tours which is which is um there were actually a lot of tours but this west indian tour um can you just give a context around the thinking around the time uh, around the the, the 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 west indian rebel tours and why it was brought forward in a time where south africa was under sanctions um from the international community sure um i think the uh the main thing back then was that uh there were there had already been two rebel tours an english one and a sri lankan one and the english one had gone well enough except that the england side was filled with uh it was a bit of a dad's army really team and uh, <laughs> you know it was guys just looking for a super annu- superannuation payout you know a retirement payout you know his boycott allen not the others like that i mean graham graham gooch went um and he suffered a a three year ban because of it but um with generally older guys who were past their best and um 
you know, the excitement of seeing an England team in South Africa soon wore off, soon wore off when um, it was uh, revealed how easy to beat them it was by the white South African side. And then uh, after that, um, uh, there was a Sri Lankan side that came in, I think it was in late 82. But they were uh, very substandard and they, and they got smashed uh, mm -hmm. by the... Uh, spring boxes are known back then um and so what you found was that uh the crowd interest in that sri lankan tour diminished really quickly and uh there was a i think there was a sense there was a worry and there was a fear that uh you know things were uh, things couldn't be retrieved in a way because uh the, t the tour had been so bad and, and there was a sense in which maybe South African cricket had lost face with uh, its audience, you know. So uh, Ali Baka, who was the uh, uh, on the SACU board, and Joe Pomensky, who was a president, uh, wanted a bigger fish. They wanted uh, the best team in the world. And because they knew that that would... Um, a uh, restore any lost faith that the uh, South African cricket public might have had, but also they knew it would give the uh, the Springboks a a fair tussle out on the uh, out on the pitch, you know. So they knew that it would be good cricket, and that um, it would re revive interest and in, and faith in in the game in South Africa, because obviously. Uh, from 1970 onwards, South Africa was in the wilderness, in the Test cricket wilderness, um, having been uh, banned from playing because of uh, the apartheid policies, which were still persisting into the 80s, obviously. Um, and they tried many times to uh, get the ICC, or the equivalent back then, to let them back into Test cricket. But because of uh, apartheid, they weren't allowed, and that they'd they'd also tried to uh, integrate um, at various times um, uh, players of colour into white sides, but it hadn't really worked. And there were there were two book there was a, there was the SACU, which was run by uh, Pomensky and uh, um, Ali Bakker and. And, and guys like that. And then there was also the South African Cricket Board, which was uh, sort of run by Indian South Africans. So there were, there were these two competing boards and uh, the South African Cricket Board didn't want anything to do with Rebel Tours because they thought that uh, there should be no... Uh, they had a slogan, no, no normal sport in an abnormal society. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, so that's what that's what you had at the time, and and and, and Bakker and Pomensky and South African cricket in general felt that uh, you know it, it could die out without international competition. So that that was the uh, stimulus for getting uh, rebel teams to tour. They they really wanted to uh, incite interest again because you know there's only so many curry cups with the same guys running around that uh, <laughs> I, I suppose um, crowds could tolerate after a while. So th they really feared that cricket in South Africa would die. So, you know, you can see that their motives were kind of pure on, on one hand, but on the other hand, um, by getting uh, these foreign teams to come into South Africa, they were helping to normalise um, what was going on in South Africa, helping white people feel that uh, they were living in a, in a normal world, you know, which was... Uh, obviously completely and utterly wrong and, and very crass. So, yeah, so that, that, that's what was going on at the time. And West Indies were the, the dominant uh, force in, in world cricket. Um, they were charismatic. They were, uh, they were lethal. Uh, certainly the bowlers were, or at least almost. And their batsmen played with flair and, you know, they were crowd pleasers. Uh, you, you know, everywhere they went, they were sort of, loved and heralded so if south africa could get them could lure them to the republic to the pariah republic it would be a massive coup so yeah, that, yeah. that's kind of what was happening at the time 
And so your book details the lives of these West Indian cricketers after yep. the tour and the fallout that happened in their home countries. Um, you're an Australian, Ashley. So yep. how did you come about to writing this book? Because that's the that's an interesting link because you're, you're on one island. Yeah, yeah. Other yeah. side of the world. Yeah, what have you, I got to do with it? Telling yeah. stories of men um, elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, true. Look, I, I knew about the Rebel Tours. I remember the, the Australian Rebel Tours in the mid-80s were, were quite controversial here. Uh, you know, and even the Prime Minister stepped in and, and called the, the Australians who went on those tours uh, traitors, or at least the Foreign Minister did. So, they, they, you know, they were, they were very... Um, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of angst about them, and uh, but but those guys were only hit with a three-year ban when they test you test ban when they went on those uh, rebel tours of South Africa. Um, yeah, so how did I get involved? Well, in two thousand and three, I was over in the West Indies, uh, just doing report some reporting for a, a local cricket magazine that was run by Kerry Packer, the great Kerry Packer, who uh, instigated World Series cricket, mm-hmm. um, and. We were in uh, Jamaica for a one day, uh, Sabana Park. And after the game, we were in a taxi, and, and the taxi driver noticed my uh, my press pass dangling around my neck. You know, so uh, we started talking about cricket, and, you know, as you do with taxi drivers. And then uh, he mentioned that uh, there was a, a test cricketer. Who, just down the road, who I could go and talk to if I wanted, and I said, "Yeah, why not?" And he said, "You, he, he's actually in the gutter, and he lives in the gutter. He lives on the streets, and he's, um, you know, he runs with a gang, and uh, you know, he's addicted to cocaine, you know." And I was like, "Wow, this this is just crazy." I mean, it wouldn't happen in um, in Australia that uh, an ex-test cricketer would just be living on the streets, and, you know, in full view of. Uh, the public so i was like wow okay yeah take me there and exactly as the guy said he was richard austin in the gutter uh supping rum from a, a plastic coke bottle and uh w- with about six other guys who were quite big and threatening actually and uh, that they wanted they wanted money for me to speak to him so I gave them the equivalent of 30 Australian dollars, which is you know, a fair, fair bit in Jamaican money. So, so they wanted that money to, 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 to go and buy drugs, basically. So, um, so they sort of went off and left with, with, uh, with Richard. And we got to talking. And Richard was a really entertaining guy. You know, I really liked his company. He's very funny. Uh, you know, he had a great sense of humor. Um, and, and at what, early on we were talking, he, he said he wanted to, uh, he was 48 years old at this point in time. Um, you know, his eyes were bloodshot. You know, he was, uh, he looked bedraggled. You know, he, he didn't look in, in good shape at all. But he, he said to me, and, and he was serious, but, but then I thought, well, maybe, maybe he was joking as well. Um, he said, could you give uh, Kerry Packer a call? You know, this is uh, the richest man in Australia, one of the richest men in the world. Um, he said, my good friend, Kerry Packer, that's what he said, my good friend, Kerry Packer, and uh, I will, uh, <clears throat> and, and I'll come over to New South Wales and coach and play for uh, New South Wales in the Sheffield Shield. Uh, as I said, he was 48 years old, a man with a cocaine habit living on the streets who hadn't played cricket in, in some time. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the sense of humour he had, I suppose. Uh, and you know, we got to talking as to why he was on the streets, and he said he was there just, he just said two words, South Africa, and, and that, that was it. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I went on the rebel tours of South, first rebel tour of South Africa in 1983, early 83, and, uh, you know, got paid a lot of money for it, but when I came back to Jamaica, no one wanted to speak to me because they thought I'd taken blood money, that I'd betrayed uh, my fellow countrymen um in order to uh make some money at the expense of people 
of the same color skin as me in South Africa. So, so yeah, he was ostracized from that moment on. He says, and uh, he, he said, and his life fell apart. Even though he had he, he'd uh, earned lots of money in those in that tour, and even though he, he actually had a house to go to, he was so filled with shame and uh, a sense of self pity, I suppose, that he preferred to live on the street. You know. And obviously, he also had a, a cocaine habit to uh, to facilitate as well. So, yeah, he was he w- it was quite a sad state of affairs. So I wrote a story on that, and I, I knew then that there must have been a bigger story because he was just one of twenty guys that went on those two tours. It was in the back of my mind to to flesh that out one day, and and just over the last six or seven years, I had more time to devote to thinking about it, and then I then I. Uh, then when Richard died in 2015, um, pretty much just died because of the effects of living on the street and, uh, you know, he ended up with a hernia and, you know, it wasn't diagnosed cause he didn't go get medical treatment. Then when he did, it was too late. And, and, you know, so it was, it was very sad. So I wrote an obituary for him and, and then, you know, that sort of really sparked my interest in, in the rebels. And, uh, then I, uh, submitted a book proposal and that was accepted by um, Pitch Publishing in England. And uh, from that moment on, I um, got stuck into writing the book and, and finding out about the other guys who went on it, you know. And, and you know, he was just the tip of the iceberg, really. You know, they, yeah, there's just so many different stories that, uh, you know, so many tragic ones, but not, not all tragic. You know, some, some guy, with any, within any, group of 20 men you're always going to find some that are more sensitive to others and who uh, and then some who will just cop things on the chin and get on with it you know so uh yeah it was uh you know it's been an interesting sort of it was an interesting challenge to find the guys and 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 reveal their stories i mean because that's what i wanted to do i wanted them to take their place in cricket history regardless of whether they what they did was right or wrong it was just more that uh they deserve to have their story told. Sorry, that was a very long answer. Feel free to interrupt me at any time. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's good. That's good. That was really good. Um, yeah, I've heard heard and read, read obviously read your part in, in, in the yeah. book about Richard Austin. That's terribly, terribly sad. But, but as you as you point out, there are um, other stories where they they're actually doing all right. Um, you know, the likes yeah. of um, Lawrence Rowe and um, um, I'm trying to think now. Just, there are a few, few guys that are, that are done quite, yeah. Colin Croft, of course, Colin Croft. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just talk to me, talk about the challenge of getting, getting hold of all these 20 yeah. individuals. Because that, that wasn't all that easy. You no. couldn't just pick up a phone and just go, I, I want to get all 20 together and, and have a chat. Exactly. Yeah, it was. Uh, it wasn't easy at all. Um, <laughs> I had to. I mean, the first guy I contacted with was a guy called Ray Winter, and he was probably the most um, unsung and unheralded of all the rebels. He came over and played one test in in the first tour. He's sort of a, a fast bowler with a slingshot action, who had a reputation for uh, you know causing a lot of blood on the wicket in in um in jamaica but he, he hadn't played that many games for uh for jamaica in, in the shell shield so um so i thought it would just be interesting to see whether i could contact the least known of of the um the rebels just just as a sort of challenge first up um and yeah so i googled and googled and googled and then and then i i facebooked uh messaged the uh kingston cricket club and uh and about a week later, I got a message from them, and this guy, young guy who, who plays for them, uh, said that he only checks Facebook once every two months, and he just happened to uh, notice that uh, there was a message there. So he got in contact with me, and he said, yeah, I know Ray. Um, I can get you in contact with him. And so he gave me a phone number. Uh, and then they gave me that a number of um, a woman who lived down the street from Herbert Chang, who's the left-handed uh, uh, batsman who uh, of Chinese descent who um, played 
who came over as a replacement later on in the first tour, the first Rebel tour, but who after the tours had a mental breakdown and and, and ended up, um, yeah, really sort of straightened circumstances. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so Facebook uh, sort of helped me in that way. And when I contacted Ray, he was, uh, I could tell in his voice, he's got a very deep voice. He, he just kept on going, all right. All right, all right, and and I just thought that's one one too many all rights, you know, because he obviously wasn't convinced that I was the real deal, you know. And I said, look, I'm going to come over there and I'm going to come and see you, and uh, if you don't mind, you know. So we had it. We we talked and talked, and and uh, you know, he told me stuff, and I said, look, I'm going to come over and, and I'll see you, and uh, we'll meet up. And then when I actually met him, you know, he was uh, he was great, and and you know, he took me around. He took me to Kensington Oval, the home of Lawrence Rowe and Richard Austin and uh, uh, Basil Williams and and Herbert Chang and uh, yeah, Wavell Hines, guys like that. So, um, so yeah, I convinced him. But um, what what also worked for me, guys, was uh, as I say, yeah, Facebook. In that, when I got to uh, the Caribbean. Actually, the Caribbean and the US, I, I did them both together because a lot of lot of guys who decamped to uh, the US from the Caribbean after the tours to escape the uh, hostility of the of the their, you know their, their countrymen at the time. Um, yeah, what I, what I would do is when I, when I interviewed one of the guys, I'd post it on Facebook and uh, share that around. And a, a lot, some of the rebels. Um, have Facebook accounts and, and I'd friend them, you know, and and then that would come up on their uh, feed and then they'd see that, wow, I, I'd spoken to Lawrence Rowe. He, he must be the real deal. He's, he's, not, he's not bullshitting. So, um, you know, uh, that, that's how it sort of gained momentum, you know, using social media in that way to um, show that I wasn't, um, you know, just some charlatan from, you know, a place in the world that didn't really have anything to do with them, which, which on the surface, I can imagine how that would have seemed. Here I was, you know, this white guy in Sydney wanting to tell their stories. I mean, what, what was my motive? You know, like, they could only have thought, I suppose, sinister things in the beginning. But, you know, all I really wanted to do was tell the story, a story that I thought I had um, a unique insight into because I was uh, – one of the only people that that had written about Richard Austin, you know, so, um, and I'd seen him and, and that just gave me an in that, you know, no other journalist had. So, um, I thought, well, yeah, let's go with it. You know? mm. Um, and with obviously the players that you interviewed and their lives, yep. there were, there were bands for people who, who, who yep. participated in the rebel tours. Um, the West Indian band was a lot longer than everybody else's. Um, it was life, but <laughs> yeah. yes, and, yeah. and 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 also the contrast of how they were received in South Africa compared to how they were received at home. Um, yeah. I know your book goes through that, but yeah, how like can you just yeah take us through the differences? Because I, sure. I was just astonished to find out that you know some guys got slaps on the wrist, the English mm -hmm. and the Australians, while yeah. other guys' lives just were turned around. And then yep. when they went on tour, it felt like nothing was was wrong. Yeah, well, well, being in South Africa, it was like a they were in a five star bubble. Mm. You know, these guys. I mean, you know, they were fated as kings, and they were seen as they were seen as courageous because they'd broken this sort of uh, this the Glen Eagles Agreement, which forbade uh, sporting contact between Commonwealth countries and, and South Africa. So. The courage that they had shown to do that in the eyes of the of white South Africa was was phenomenal, and they really wanted to reward them by um, showing them a good time and you know letting them have a good time. So they were able to do things that an ordinary person of colour in South Africa wasn't able to do. You know they were able to fraternise with white women, which apparently they did to quite a degree. Um, they were able to go to bars, nightclubs. Um, you know they could. Uh, Go to beaches that were off limits to uh, to people of colour in in South Africa, you know. So, yeah, they were, um, yeah, they were <laughs> they were loved by the white population in South Africa. It, it, 
and, and I think in, in, in some ways you could make a, a small argument that maybe they did help uh, liberate white eyes in a way because uh, they showed uh, here, here they were, that these great black cricketers. They came to South Africa. They, they beat the best of white South Africa. And, and they showed white South Africa that uh, black people could participate on at the highest levels in sport and and beat them and uh, and also behave with dignity and be entertaining and and be everything that um, they hadn't experienced with with black people in in their in South Africa up to that point because for for most white people black uh, people in South Africa were um, you know miners or doing manual labor jobs or um, they were maids and you know because of because of apartheid you know so here they were seeing uh, South Africans sorry um, seeing West Indian players of, of African descent uh, you know playing so well and and uh, showing you know that that they were uh, the equal and if not better than white South Africa so that, that was pretty amazing and I've got this uh, magazine here called Calypso Cavaliers which is that mm. uh, celebrates the it's a story of the 1983 tour and I'll just read you the first paragraph of that and it says um, you know it, it's a it's a big publication it's about 70 pages there's lots of color pictures in there and you know sort of review mm. of the tour and it just says this publication this is the forward by the editor Brian Crowley it says this publication is offered as a tribute to those who have worked so long and so hard for the benefit of all South Africa's cricketers whose foresight and fortitude made the dream come true. Mr. Joe Pominski, Dr. Ali Backer, and your many helpers, Mr. Padmore, it's Albert Padmore, Mr. Mm -hmm. Gregory Armstrong, Mr. Lawrence Rowe, and the members of your fine team of Calypso cricketers, I salute you. I mean, that, that was the sort of tone of what it was like, you know, the, the newspapers, you know, which were you know, universally in, in black and white, you know, black, black, and white, black print back then. You know, black on white. Um, had, had coloured wraparounds. With, you know, celebrating the, the the next Test match at, at Johannesburg or or wherever. Um, you know, even <laughs> from the book, I'll just read you one little bit here. It, it, even um, rug, rugby loving Afrikaners got into it. And there's this quote here that I got from um, uh, the Rand Daily Mail newspaper, and it says. The Fixburg Afrikaans Sakakama, a regional business association, sent 200 rand to the SACU to convey our heartfelt thanks and appreciation to your board and to the West Indies cricketers for what they've done for sport in South Africa. So it was just phenomenal the amount of interest they generated amongst uh, the, the white public. But at the same time, um, the, the black public in, in, in South Africa you know, that they weren't really interested in it at all. And, and I saw, you know, I, like the, the Rand Daily Mail had a, a township edition and also a regular edition. Um, and in that township edition, there was virtually no coverage at all of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the cricket, you know. So it's often been made in hindsight the point that uh, these West Indian tours, um, you know, were inspirational for young black people in 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 sort of ghetto areas, and and you know they they looked up to and idolised them. But as far as I can tell, they didn't know much about what was really going on at all. You know, it wasn't covered. It was just really a white preoccupation. You know, and uh, hmm. yeah, so so that's what was happening there. Um, and uh, oh yeah, in in <laughs> in the Caribbean, it was uh, <sighs> you see up until I mean. Uh, like post independence, like most of the uh, of the big uh, Caribbean countries got independence in the in the early sixties, and so in the United Nations uh, they would regularly get up, like a uh, Prime Minister of Jamaica, um, uh, uh, Manly. He, he would, yeah. yeah, yeah, Michael Manly, yeah, yeah. He would uh, get up in in the UN and. Um, talk about sanctions against South Africa, but he wanted a, a land, sea, and air boycott of, of South Africa. He didn't just want uh, economic sanctions, you know, because 
as he wrote, he he, he said that um, uh, apartheid apartheid points like a dagger at the throat of uh, black people all around the world. So, you know, there there were across the Caribbean there was this current of thought, and justifiably so, that uh, apartheid was a scourge that that had to be eradicated. That was a blight on humanity. And uh, that was the feeling I- in the Caribbean, uh, certainly amongst the political class and, and, and everyone who knew about it. Um, and, and in 1981, uh, the test match in Guyana between England and, and the West Indies was uh, cancelled because Robin Jackman, who had ties with South Africa, was uh, selected to play and uh, the Guyana would not tolerate that. So... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, so that was the atmosphere that was uh, of you know anti-apartheid um, resentment, and, and as I said, justifiably so in in the Caribbean at that point in time. Um, so for these guys, these uh, these rebels to go to South Africa, they not only had to um, break the Glen Eagles Agreement, they also had to sort of betray, in a way, the faith. That was put in them by um, the public, who who loved them, you know. Um, but by the same token, there were also people in the Caribbean, many who thought that these guys had a right to earn a living and to make money, because the Caribbean is uh, is almost third world in its in its uh, poverty, mm. and you know they um, they felt that. Uh, you know, he was a, he was a ticket out of poverty for these guys. So they had a lot of support on the ground. On, on the man, the man in the street was very much in favour of um, them going. But uh, when you got to the educated middle classes and the the political class and the the clergy and uh, and and people like that, um, yeah, there was you know there, there was outrage. You know that they they would even consider doing this. That you know they that they would betray their own uh, their, their own the color of their skin really in order to make um a lot of money you know at the expense of um you know their south african their black south african brothers so uh yeah there was uh you know a real current of hostility towards uh apartheid in in uh, in the caribbean and these guys would have to contend with that when they uh when they came back yeah just on that the fact yep. that they were treat, treated in their homeland in that in that particular fashion and fated here in South Africa, yep. um, eight of them went on to play domestic cricket uh, in South Africa. After that, do you think yep. that the, that particular those rebel tours had an influence? That they did they speak about their decision to come back to South Africa and play for the yeah. provincial sides? Sure. Mm. Well, for a lot of them. Uh, it was the only chance they had to play because they were um, they were banned from all first-class cricket in the West Indies, and they were banned from Test cricket for life. So uh, South Africa was a lifeline for them, professionally speaking. Um, they could still play in England, in um, but you know the the, the offers weren't uh, coming through in the same way they were before they went on the tours. Um, so yeah, uh, South Africa was a lifeline, and but also. It kept the standard. I, I, this is what has been said to me by a few of the um, white South African cricketers from that era. They've said that by having Sylvester Clark and Collis King and Alvin Kalitran and Franklin Stevenson mm-hmm. and Emerson Trotman and all those guys playing in South Africa, it kept the standard high because um, when the West Indies Rebels came out, it they taught the Springboks a lesson, you know, mm. um, that, that they just weren't prepared for that kind of hostility in, in terms of fast bowling from, uh, from the likes of, uh, Clark and, uh, and, and, uh, Ezra Mosley and Hartley Elaine, you know, that they, they'd never experienced anything like it. So, um, they were really, uh, they, they were really sort of shocked and they had to step up a level in order to be able to combat, um, that kind of pace. And so to have those guys continue on there, kept the standard up, um, 
you know, in, in and, and, and kept helped keep the game alive. Obviously, there were more tours as well, like the Australians came, as I said, for two years as well. But, uh, yeah, um, uh, Alvin Carl-Turan is, you know, he, he certainly played a lot, lot uh, of... Um, Cricket there as well, and he, you know he, he was one of the one of the one of the greats of uh, West Indian cricket. Um, Lawrence Rowe didn't come back though. Uh, I think he'd had enough, you know, because he he's, mm. he uh, he was vilified when he went back to Jamaica because he w- he was the captain, you know, and but he, and he was also fated as a national hero prior to going because he'd scored three hundred and fourteen runs for once out in his first Test match. I mean, it still hasn't been beaten. It, it's still a record in test cricket and then a triple century like two years later i mean he, he was averaging 70 at, you know um you know when he was age 26 or something you know he was he was a fantastic player whose his career sort of slid downhill a little because of uh eyesight and allergy problems that he had but uh yeah when he went back to um jamaica um you know he said there'd been death threats uh you know he he ran a sports shop with uh Michael Holding and Basil Shotgun Williams, the uh, Jamaican opener, um, opening batsman. Um, yeah, and yeah, and you know his kids were copying it at school. You know, it was it was a difficult time, so he moved to Miami. You know, um, and uh, yeah, he and, and he's still you know, he's still peeved by the treatment that he he got, and uh, even to this day. I'll tell you a little story. It's it's very contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, recently, at Sabina Park, uh, yeah. the wall that runs along Sabina Park, there's a, a mural that's gone up of 20 of uh, Jamaica's greatest cricketers. And you've got guys like Holding, you know, Courtney Walsh, uh, George mm-hmm. Headley. Um, and you've got lesser lights like Morris Foster, you know, who, who still played Test cricket. And then you've got Marlon Tucker, who never played Test cricket. Uh, there are a couple of women there. I think there's a guy who's um, who, who's played uh, uh, unsighted cricket for the West Indies as well. His mm-hmm. murals up there, um, but there's no sign of Lawrence Rowe, and that's because he went on the Rebel tours. So he's still being excluded, you know, or, or you know, whitewashed from um, uh, you know Jamaican life hmm. i suppose you know there's a yeah, story and that's today um, yeah there's a story around the lawrence row i think in 2015 um he had a stand named after him at yeah, Park, yeah. um and he apologized for the yeah. um for, for the rebel tours but it was taken down a couple of months later um yeah. largely because of, of of the comments he made even after yeah. Um, yep. that way he kind of mentioned and uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong that they didn't see anything wrong with going yeah. on the rebel tour um yep. and and that leads me to my question the yep. thinking the characteristics of these players right they played test cricket um weren't they earning enough or had they just gone past as you mentioned the other rebel tours had dad's armies um <laughs> you know because there were others in the, in that time who refused to go so what was the, the thinking behind these 20 um, and didn't they know that th- the backlash could have happened? Yeah. Um, they did know. Yes. Uh, but not to that extent. I don't think they thought it would happen to that extent, to that extreme that they'd be banned for life. They thought maybe they'd get two or three year bans like the um, English guys did. Mm. That's what they thought. But, you know, there was uh, obviously the color of their skin and what they were doing and what it meant to their people back home um, added an extra layer of uh, sort of culpability, I suppose, in the eyes of um, you know, the, the Caribbean. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, um, that, that in the case of, most of them, they were uh, they were coming to the ends of their careers. They were also uh, they hadn't made a lot of money from cricket. They had coaching jobs mainly w- with the government. In, in some cases, I mean, Lawrence Rowe had probably done better because, as I said, he was fated as a national hero, and uh, you know he had various sponsorships and 
um, you know, he, he was, uh, yeah, sort of sought after, you know, a, a guy who could, you know, who you wanted to be associated with, who co companies wanted to be associated with in, in Jamaica especially. But whereas these other guys, they were fringe players who couldn't make it into the West Indies side. The West Indies side was so dominant, um, you know, that they had enough left over to, to make another world-beating side. And that was proven by the fact that these guys who were essentially a, a second 11 went to South Africa and beat the best that South Africa could offer. So, so here you have uh, these fantastic players. Like Sylvester Clark was probably the most feared bowler in county cricket, um, but he couldn't make it into the West Indies side. Well, he did for 11 tests or so. Um, but, you know, Malcolm Marshall was in his way and, and Michael Holding and uh, Andy Roberts and... Joel Garner and Colin Croft, you know, some of the, the greatest bowlers in the history of cricket. So, um, yeah, they they saw this as a chance to make some money, um, you know, coming from such poor backgrounds. There's, there's a guy from um, uh, Jamaica, Everton Matters, who I met in uh, upstate New York, Poughkeepsie. Um, he he came from Jamaica and he, he had to escape to uh, New York because he said the police were hassling when he came back to um, to Kingston after the uh, Rebel Tours. Um, elegant right-handed batsman. Um, yeah, and he he said to me that, uh, you know, he went on the tours because, you know, he, he was just so poor. You know, he'd grown up in a, in a ghetto where there were, where there were sort of war... <laughs> warring uh, factions um, you know, every day within the ghetto. Like these dons were sort of commanding sort of one ghetto army against another. And here he was, his family in the middle, you know, and, and you know, he was copying this every day of his life. And, 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 and this is what he'd grown up in. And he was a chance to earn $100,000 for, you know, a couple of weeks' work. It was like, wow, what, what would you do in those situations, you know? And I think that's what, the, what I've tried to ask in the book is, you know, people into that sort of same set of circumstances and, and, and ask them what they would do because he was being offered uh, 80 times more than what your average Jamaican would expect to earn in a year. So that's a lot wow. of damn money and that, and that would set, set him up for life, you know. Um, yeah, so, yeah, obviously the money was a, was a massive factor for, for these guys. Um, and you can understand it, you know, considering the poverty that they came from. Mm. Yes, uh, the, it, it wasn't just loose change. It was it was a considerable oh, yeah, amount yeah. of money. Yeah, um, essentially. Uh, no, mm. Incredible amount. Um, <clears throat> on, on the tour itself and, and on the players that, that uh, the South African Cricket Union tried to get, they tried to get... Uh, you mentioned the Malcolm Marshall and yeah. um, I think Desmond Haynes. Yeah. Uh, they they became household names in South African cricket after yeah. Uh, yeah. afterwards. But but that, that was quite a close call with, with those two. What what happened with that? I know there's a story behind that. Yeah, yeah, they were in in Melbourne at the time playing sub district cricket there, and and Malcolm Marshall hadn't quite established himself in the West Indies side. Um, Desmond Haynes had, had recently done so. He was um, Gordon Greenwich's part, partner at that, st at that point. Um, but they, was, they were both young guys, you know, early 20s. Um, and as I said, Malcolm Marshall hadn't been uh, anointed as Andy Roberts' successor yet in the sort of fearsome, foursome pace attack of the West, of West Indies cricket that was uh, happening at that point. Um, so... Yes, uh, he, they were contacted by Ali Bakker and apparently there were tickets at the travel agent in Melbourne that Bakker had uh, paid for and they were ready there for them to pick up and they were going to pick them up. And uh, David Murray, uh, who knew them both, who was in Adelaide at the time playing cricket there, playing grey cricket there, he... Uh, he was meant to meet them in Perth on the flight to South Africa. And he got there and they hadn't shown up you know, because apparently uh, they both had chats with uh, a Mr. Walcott from the, 
the BCA, the Barbados Cricket Association, who assured them that uh, you know they they had a bright future in the game for the West Indies and that they'd be taken care of uh, financially in some respect. You know, obviously not to the same degree that it would be by going on the Rebel tours. So they uh, didn't um, didn't didn't tour, but you know that. There were reports in newspapers, in the Australian newspapers from the time that they're actually going. You know, I mean, that's how close it was. Um, and I think with Malcolm Marshall, he was he was very canny. He showed the same kind of canniness that he used to show on, on the pitch when he was bowling. You know, he he played a waiting game, and he saw that Colin Croft, uh, who was one of the fearsome pace battery, um, has was on the brink of signing. And he knew that if Colin Croft signs, there'd be a position opening up in that, you know, it's, it's one of those, um, one of that quartet. Um, the fearsome awesome. Yes, the fearsome awesome. Yes. So, um, you know, he sort of waited, played a waiting game and and mm-hmm. uh, and toyed around with uh, Ali Bakker and, you know, um, get, se- seemingly gave his assent to the whole idea. And then when he uh, found out that, Croft wasn't going. He uh, he said no. Well, that, that's one version of, of history, anyway. But and I think it kind of stacks up. You know, um, you know, Marshall could see that. Yeah, there was an opportunity for him now. Now that if, if Croft was going, you know, um, yeah, he he could seize that uh, spot in the West Indies side. Well, that's that's actually quite fascinating. Making use of of, of potential bands to try. Yeah, to yeah, to advantage. Yeah, I mean, it all sounds <laughs> it all sounds rather. I don't know. Yeah, Look, it's, it's pretty clever. Um, yeah, it's clever. Yeah. It, it shows of a, of, of a man who understood mm. the situation, yep. had a lot of foresight, yep. and understood the wider. As yep. people around him who gave him proper advice, which a lot of the guys in the twenty um, yep. didn't necessarily have. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and look, that money was a lot. A hundred hundred thousand dollars right now is still a lot of money today. So imagine what yep. it was back in yep. those days, especially in the Caribbean. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. My final question around all of this was um, was how there were two tours. The first tour yeah. and the second one. How did they end up still getting the second tour even after, or was the backlash largely out of tour number two? Um, and 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 like, did you ask any of the cricketers why they went back? Well, they were um, contracted for two tours okay. initially. And uh, the first, I mean, there was a lot of uh, um, resentment from the Caribbean during the first tour, more so because um, it was it was the first one. It was sort of out of the blue a bit, and you know, no one thought that it could happen. So by the second tour, it had probably died down a bit the hostility because. You know, they'd already done it. They'd already um, broken the ban on contact with South Africa. Um, you know, it, yeah, it, it wasn't uh, such a, a novelty. And that, that was probably one of the reasons why the second tour, I mean, there was still a, a lot of interest, you know, but, um, you know, things went sour at one point over sponsorship um, deals and, uh, um, and, and the one day as well, Wonderfully attended, but towards the end, some of the the tests, you know, they weren't getting quite the crowds that they got, you know, during the, the first tour. Um, yeah, so yeah, so they were contracted for two tours, and, and I actually heard from Gregory Armstrong, who was the uh, tour manager. He said to me that they were initially going to do five tours. Wow. Yeah, because. Uh, it had all gone so well, but during the second tour, the uh, the squabbling over um, sponsorship money um, sort of crueled that idea, I think. Mm. But but even the next season, I I read in South African newspapers from the time that uh, there was talk of doing like a triangular series um, where they would invite West Indies, Rebels, Australian Rebels and 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 have a three-way contest with uh, South Africa, you know, um, one days and, and possibly tests as well over the over the coming seasons. But obviously that didn't happen. But you know, 
there were there were lots of ideas at the time but uh yeah that that's uh that came from the horse's mouth um Gregory Armstrong he said yeah there were going to be five five West Indies tours because uh, you know it had, been, it had been such a, a success you know and uh, they were so <laughs> you see the footage and you see the they're just queues of guys just queues of young boys uh, wanting autographs and pieces of clothing or anything equipment um, from the likes of Collis King who was a massive hit in South Africa he was uh, the I think the newspapers dubbed him Cool Breeze because he he could he could just go out there quite flamboyantly and, and score you know a century off you know virtually no no balls and then uh, um, you know take a couple of wickets or a spectacular catch. You know, he sort of em, embodied what people in South Africa thought was Calypso cricket. You know, so yeah, th these guys were lauded. They um, yeah were, they were treated like kings in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, I've just got a couple more. Um, yep. So obviously, um, there'll be South Africans listening in here of a certain generation who will have been there, seen yep. the tours. Um, did you speak to uh, any of the South African players that were involved, the Grand Pollocks of this world, um, the Rupert Handleys, and I spoke to him. What yep. was their perception of the tour? Um, and then how was your book received in the how's the book being received in the Caribbean? Okay, yeah. Um, the uh, the South African guys, well, they thought it was fantastic that uh, the West Indies came out to play, but they, they were so hungry for international competition, <clears throat> especially uh, Barry Richards. I mean, he was 35 or 36, and he was thinking of um, hanging up the the bat. Um, but the thought of testing himself against the West Indies was enough to lure him away from retirement. And uh, so he, he practiced. He told me he practiced day in, day out with a bowling machine cranked up to 100 miles an hour in anticipation <laughs> of facing Sylvester Clark and, and, uh, and Colin Croft. Um, yeah, so yeah, he, he was particularly uh, thrilled by the idea, but ultimately, um, you know, he, he he did okay. He, he actually retired after the first tour, and you know, he quit, acquitted himself well. But he did say to me as well that uh, he felt like, you know, not not so much that that ended his career just more that uh, he realized that uh, compared to 10 years before he didn't quite have the reflexes that he had you know and you really needed to have quick reflexes in order to be able to combat those guys so it kind of exposed to him that yeah maybe he wasn't quite the player that he was um yeah uh graham pollock yeah i spoke to him yeah he also thought it was fantastic i mean he he got felled by a uh, hartley elaine bouncer in the in the second tour and um, you know he sort of dropped like a, a sack of spuds on on the pitch, and you know it was really. Um, I mean, you can actually see it on uh, on YouTube if you if you want to Google mm. it. Um, yeah, but yeah, he he said that uh, you know it was a great challenge, and and he was he was still able to score freely, and uh, he's and he played on for another two years against the Australians as well, and scoring double centuries. So. Yeah, um, yeah, certainly kept his career alive. Um, yeah, Rupert Spook Hanley. Um, I think he took a hat trick in the on the in the second uh, in the second tour against the West Indies in in a one day. Um, yeah, he he told me that um, he thought the tours were. Yeah, the, the, I mean they all they all said that you know that they despised apartheid and you know that they thought it was crazy, but you know. They just thought that this this was all they had, you know, and, and this was the best they could do at the time. And well, you know, we we did it, you know, and and uh, you know, and and it kept South African cricket alive in their eyes. So it it was a, so they they tend to think it was a it was a good thing that the Rebel Tours happened, you know. Um, but uh, you know, they they but these were guys like Barry Richards and Pollock, you know, they they taken part in. 
a walk-off in 1971. Um, I think it was uh, Transvaal were playing the rest of South Africa in a in a in a game in a first-class match, and uh, they walked off after the first ball as a protest against apartheid. And this is you know Pollock and uh, Richards and uh, Proctor and I think Transvaal were head, were led by a guy called Donald Mackay Coghill, um, who I just spoken to recently, in fact, and he said that uh, you know that they wanted to be able to play with uh, with black guys, they wanted to be able to play with people of colour, but they weren't allowed to, and and this was a protest against that. So so you can see that that even going back to to then that you know these guys. They were in an unfortunate situation, you know. They weren't, uh, they didn't like apartheid, but they they were professional cricketers and they they wanted to play. So, so they certainly enjoyed the series. You know, it it was good for them. Yeah. What was the second part of your question, Tim? Uh, sorry. Uh, how is your book being received in the Caribbean? Did you um, did you get any pushback? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's been mostly well received i mean there have been one or two people who thought that uh well actually it's just one person who thought that i was taking advantage of the guys um <laughs> little do they know um how how small the percentage is that you make from each book you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I i barely um barely broken even in fact um yeah so um in Jamaica, you know, there's been a little bit of, um, yeah, there's, you know, there's a big story in the Jamaica Gleaner and Observer about uh, about the book, and um, but what I found was that there, there was still a sentiment there that these guys should should remain unforgiven, that they shouldn't mm. be forgiven. You know, this is this is what the the book had sort of. Uh, as revealed there, um, and th this was the tone of the the writing there, you know, about the book. Um, uh, in Barbados, there, there's interest, but then at, at times there, I mean, the reaction in Barbados wasn't as extreme as in Jamaica to the uh, the rebels. You know, there was a bit more of a laissez-faire sort of attitude, in that you know that they felt that the rebels had a right to make. Um, and make money as professional cricketers but you know the government's policy was you know very much anti-apartheid and they were very much uh, upset by the rebels going there so yeah there, there has been a reluctance to talk about it that i've noticed you know from uh from the media there they they want to talk to you and then all of a sudden they'll pull out at the last moment you know they won't um do the interview or, you know, there'll be some sort of feeble excuse sort of made up. Um, yeah, uh, Trinidad was was interesting. Um, uh, there was only one uh, rebel from Trinidad, Bernard Julian, who was a uh, mm. dashing, handsome all-rounder. Um, but, yeah, I, I did quite a bit of media there. And the, the, the feeling there was, I think, that uh, about the book was, first up, like you guys said, you know, what the hell are you doing writing a book like this? You know, I mean, you know, you're in Australia, you're, you're a white guy in from Sydney. What, what the hell's going on? And then, in in the same breath, um, it was Fazir um, Muhammad, um, who, who's who's what is an excellent uh, cricket commentator there. Yeah. yeah, and he said to me, he said, yeah, it does seem strange. But he said, but but by the same token. That, that often history is viewed best by people who are outside the culture because they have a, a broader perspective and they're not held down by the same biases and prejudices that people within are. So he said that, you know, it was a good thing and that, um, you know, that there's, he said that there's a reluctance in the Caribbean to tell uh, difficult stories and controversial stories and, and there's a tendency to sweep them under the carpet. So... So from his perspective, uh, you know, it, it's a good thing that the book has happened. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and that, that kind of um, gels with what with my idea about the book in that, 
you know, you, you can't sweep things under the carpet. Um, you know, you've got to uh, tell the stories of the of these guys because, uh, you know, there, there's so many, um, there's so many different uh, perspectives and and ways in which this the stories of these guys play out. You know, it, it's political, it's social, it's economic, it's racial, it's uh, it's sport. You know. It's all these things interlinked, and they, uh, you know, the the consequence of one decision that these guys made in their in in a lot of cases, you know, in their mid twenties, um, you know, absolutely scarred them for life. You know, so so there's that aspect of it as well. You know, the sort of decisions we make and the the price you sometimes pay inadvertently when you're not um, when you don't think that uh, the worst is going to happen, but ultimately it does in in some cases. You know. Yeah, so. so Ashley, I think we've reached the, the end of our interview. No um, worries. For those who are wanting to get grab a hold of the book, um, is there a link for the book um, or like a website they can go to order it? Um, um, yeah, um, yeah, you can get it from Amazon, I'm pretty sure. Um, you can get it from um, Pitch Publishing in, in the UK. Um, yeah, it's pretty easy to Google and find. So it's the Unforgiven uh, Missionaries or Mercenaries, mm. and it's by Pitch Publishing. So yeah, if you key those in, you, you'll you'll find it in lots of different bookstores. Uh, I think Waterstones in the UK has got it. I mean, yeah, it's in lots of Australian bookshops as well. So yeah, it's it's all around, and and hopefully uh, all your listeners will buy one plus one for their friends as well. And more. Um, they certainly should. Yeah. They certainly should because it's an excellent yes, book. Yes, they should. <laughs> Thank yes, you. and that's and and that's and that's from Ashley Gray. Buy one plus one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so from a South African perspective, it can be. It's also available in exclusive books, um, and you can you can go and have a look there. Um, you can search for Ashley Gray, and you'll. You'll find it there, The Unforgiven. Um, Ashley, thank you very much for uh, having this conversation with us. This is uh, truly enriching because the stories of those men has has never been documented. It's always been there was a rebel tour. These people um, came, and in South Africa, as a black person, I was I never really yep. liked them. I thought that they were they were foolish to do this, but yes, you've given yes. a, uh, you've, you've added color to everything. Um, and, and um, most definitely a read for any black South African or any South African who wants to get the other side of the story and, and how it is, because we all, and as many people have said around apartheid, we've all, we've all, we all sheltered in some different way and we didn't see different sides of the story. So these men um, were really, you know, they did something, and yeah, um, the, and I think the, the reader will decide whether they should be forgiven or not. Um, yeah, exactly. But I, yeah, and and I and I do think that's where um, the conversation will will ultimately lead. But thank you very much, um, Ashley, again, um, and yeah, um, all the best with uh, the book sales. Um, it was a wisdom book uh, of the year last year, so that's something. Yes, and and, um, and the other, and recently it was the uh, British. Cricket Book of the Year as well, I think. Oh, okay. There you have it. British Cricket Book of the Year and the Wisdom Cricket Book of the Year. So do go out and get it. Thank you very much, Ashley. Um, I, could, and yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I could talk to you about the book for another hour, but uh, <laughs> we're, all, we're, we're all time limited here. Just wanted to concur with, with Paul. Just thanks yep. very much for coming on and, no and giving your side of the, the book. It's been a great listen. Thanks, yes. thanks. It's a pleasure. And, you know, it, as uh, Mapova was saying, you know, it, it's just good to get the guy's stories out there. And ultimately, the reader will make a judgment, I suppose. Or, And, and I hope the book just allows uh, the reader to empathise more with the decision they made, these guys. Not so much to say, to go, well, they made the right decision, but just to see that, you know, they're just human beings just... Um, mm doing what they did, you know, and, and there were a lot of uh, mitigating factors. It wasn't just a case of, uh, you know, take the money and run. There were a lot of other things going on in their lives at the time, you know, and, uh, yeah, they were um, feverish times back then, you know, as we mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Yes, anyway, thanks, guys. Good. Appreciate it. Yes. All the best. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Tim, thank you very much for that. That was lovely. Slightly longer, but I think you will be grabbed in the, the, the listener and the viewer will be grabbed in the first couple of minutes because the stories of these men are just um, incredible and um, they need to be told. And I'm really happy um, that you, you brought this through. So, um, yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's exactly it. That's exactly what I, I wanted to do. I wanted to just give a viewpoint, uh, a background story of those tours. Um, and it was it was really good that Ashley could, could do that. Um, and he does do that throughout the book. It's, it's you do have sympathy. Um, you might, you, you still think that what would happen was wrong, but you have a lot more sympathy for, for those that, that did the tour. Um, so I'm glad, glad, glad you enjoyed it. Um, anyone's listening, I hope you, you enjoyed it. Uh, I do think mm -hmm. the fact that it was longer was worth it. Um, if anyone out there would like a, um, this to continue, uh, I could get more South African cricket authors on, because uh, we are a South African podcast. So there are lots of, lots of South African writers who've written cricket books, uh, mm. present and past. Um, so I, I would just like to know whether you guys are, are interested in that. Um, that'd be good to know. Well, I'm definitely most interested. So Tim, I'm going to tell you from here, go forth and conquer um, and, and, and go do that. You always bring the most incredible guests uh, to the show. So thank you very much. Remember, um, that's the end of our show. Um, we'll be back next week to discuss the CSA T20 knockout quarterfinals. Um, so please do watch out for that. Outside of that, you can interact with us on our various platforms, YouTube, Twitter, and as well as, as Facebook. Please also like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Thank you very much, uh, Tim, and thank you to Ashley as well for coming on. From myself and Paul and Tim, good, goodbye, have a great day, and we're selling.